Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Antifada. Uh, episode 211. Boy, we've really made it far, haven't we? We are here, Andy and myself, uh, with a very special guest and a friend, of course, Alex Press on the Labor Beat with Jacobin, The Nation, uh, The New Republic, all sorts of other places. What's up, Alex? How's it going? Oh, it's going well. Thanks for having me. Fun Great to, to have you. I mean, Sean and I... We often argue about labor when we run into each other around town, so I'm glad to have a more formal excuse to argue about labor. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I think in the main uh, episode here, the one for everybody, uh, the free one, uh, we're going to not do so much arguing as much as <laughs> Alex is going to give us, as we like to do on this show, like an update on uh, the quote-unquote labor movement, on what's going on with workers in the United States of America. Basically, you're the beat that you're on, because you know more about this probably than anybody we know. You're at the conventions, you're at strikes, you're at pickets, you're talking with workers in rank-and-file organizations. Uh, you have an affiliation with the DSA as well, right, and their labor committees? I do. I do, though I'm not particularly active with their labor committees, in in part for reasons that actually aren't real. You know, I just figured if I'm going to cover things, maybe it's a little easier to not also be having a hand in creating them. Um, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, that whole journalistic integrity thing. Well, it's, you know, it's a tricky thing. I'm very openly a partisan of the working class. I don't pretend to be a journalist, really. But, in you know, I think sometimes it just gets a little confusing. Uh, but yes, affiliation with DSA, for sure. And uh, you've written a lot over the last four or five years, and we've had the ability to um, go back and look at some of your writing. Um, the sort of um, experience I think that you've had, uh, as I said, on picket lines and at conventions and doing research on this stuff is really invaluable. And I think a really good counterpoint to, if I can do a little self-critique, and Andy, I don't know if I'll include you in this because uh, you're not me, but yeah, maybe just to, us just in general. In case listeners don't know, I'm very D-class A. Uh, I'm a you know <laughs> uh, anti-worker, middle-class dropout. So I'm going to try to keep up on the episode. But I do have a funny story about something I found in the trash earlier if you guys are interested in that if not just talk about labor and i'll, I'll chime in if i can <laughs> typical mapache behavior i was i was gonna say like there's a, a vast disconnect it feels like sometimes between the theories that we have about how the world works and the sort of abstractions about like what it what working class means and what's its relationship to capital and what sort of like schematic ways can we imagine labor breaking out of this huge slump that it's in right now. Um, there's all that stuff on the one hand, but then there's the real like experiential granular shit that you deal with uh, on the day to day. And I feel like if we don't talk to Alex Press and get your kind of like real world view on things, then we end up often in fucking cloud cuckoo land somewhere talking <laughs> about things that uh yeah very much aren't real yeah i mean i to be clear i sort of see myself as producing kind of data that is that i would like people who are more on the theoretical level to just constantly be sort of incorporating and and using into their to, to refine their theories right um i'm not opposed to the you know high up kind of view from a thousand feet stuff um and you know sean i've i've learned a lot from listening to you over the years as well on that front. But yes, I, I like to think that they're both of these things work together, right? And that you sort of have to, you have to say, okay, well, what are the workers actually doing here? What do they think before you start proclaiming about what they should or shouldn't be doing or, you know, sort of their obstacles? Um, so that's how I see myself in this broader kind of like landscape or uh, to, to use a funny phrase, division of labor. Ah, yes. Uh, well, I think that's a you know as good an introduction as any to what we're going to be doing here. But uh, I think importantly at the outset we should find out what Andy found in the trash <laughs> yes. recently. Andy, give us your good story. So I was just taking a jog before the episode, running down Flushing Avenue, and I found you know somebody seemed to be moving out, and there was a lot of good-looking stuff in front of the house, including some appliances. Like there was a Kerrig in there. I don't really want a Kerrig, but there's some other Kerrig machine-looking things, and there was a sort of like a yellow spherical thing i thought maybe it was like a shop vac but it looked like it looked like a nice small appliance about the size of a football i pick it up and inspect it never really seen anything quite like it before it seemed to be like this hollow plastic tubular device and so mm. i flip it towards the top and, and look into it i see this uh, sort of opening with like this plasticky thing inside and i realize it can only be one thing it was a blowjob machine no. It was a, a portable really? blowjob machine. Yeah, a really nice looking one, but not even I considered taking the blowjob machine back. 
I put, I put it back on the sidewalk about, and uh, went home and washed my hands. Everybody <laughs> talks about chat GPT. They talk about, you know, advanced robotics and like auto factories, which we'll talk about later in the episode. But the automation <laughs> crisis has also hit blowjobs and, and sexual labor. So. So true. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't take it back because I think that's, you know, putting people out of work. So. Can, can I ask? Can I ask Andy? Was this what neighborhood was this that they're they're having so many blow bo- job machines that they're throwing out the old model? Uh, East Williamsburg. Mm. Okay. Makes sense, right? Now that, That's useful. That neighborhood has really changed, man. Time was, you know, <laughs> blow jobs were an interpersonal affair. Uh, you know, the done between free peoples, a free association of blow job producers and receivers, and now there's yeah, the whole thing's blown. Not in those lofts that are meant to, you know, keep you isolated and alone. You know, now they're just uh, purchasing blow job machines right off Amazon. <laughs> this is where we go into some weird, like, quasi right wing populist thing about neoliberalism. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or a Zizekian thing about blow job machines. And- um, my, my related story, it wasn't trash. It was, you know, one of those kind of giving away stuff. Um, well, I guess similar thing to what Andy experienced recently. I was walking. Um, down in my neighborhood in Crown Heights and someone was giving away books and the only three books that were in the box at that point were um, Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, <laughs> um, a baby name book um, okay. or maybe baby names in like child rearing book and then Samuel Huntington Clash of Civilizations. <laughs> and I thought that was just what a story that told those three. <laughs> Those three books are like, if the year is 2012, uh, you're leaning in and like having a baby and having it all like a CEO position, but you also believe in like civilizational struggles between the Muslim, Hindu and Christian world. On one hand, those are shitty books and you can judge the person for having ever owned them. On the other hand, they're getting rid of them. So, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. Oh, maybe they turned over another leaf. Maybe just like the blowjob machine people. You're (laughs) assuming, Andy, that they like traded up for a new one. Maybe they were like, fuck neoliberalism and robo blowjobs (laughs) and being isolated in my stupid Williamsburg loft. I'm going to go and live real. They like got rid of their, they bought a flip phone, you know, and they're they're going back (laughs) to their their They quit their corporate job. They gave away their baby. They downloaded Grindr. And they converted to Islam. (laughs) It's totally (laughs) possible. It's possible. I like <laughs> yeah. that story. Even if it's not true, we can tell it that way. They yeah, like, exactly. Uh, they're they're gearing up for Trump's uh, third presidency by like putting down the lead in sh- Clintonite shit, and um, they're they're going to take up arms in like a protracted yeah, people's up war. A gum. Yeah. yeah, appreciate that. Times are a changing. <laughs> uh, Alex, so great story, Andy. Great story. Yeah, Thank you. that was a, a good way now. to tee things up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Alex, give yeah. us, this is such a broad question, but, uh, we had, uh, what was alleged to be strike Tober, uh, last year, I guess that was, was that last October or the October before? Oh, you know, I think it actually was the October before. So yes. a year and a half ago, we had strike Tober. Um, yeah. since then we had another October, which people didn't call strike Tober at all. We've seen an uptick in strike activity in the United States, uh, a pretty modest one, but a real one. We've yeah. seen all sorts of headlines about workers fights. We saw, of course, and this is something we could talk about in detail, the, uh, railroad, railroad workers and Biden coming in and basically stopping their ability to strike. Um, we've seen a lot how, uh, the Amazon labor union, of course, with their massive breakthrough on Staten Island last year, all these things. What would you say? What give us like a rundown on what the state of, uh, organized labor is right now in the United States or, you know, for the working class in general? Sure. Yes. Big, big question. I mean, so you opened it by asking about Striketober. I mean, I remember being asked a lot about that at the time. And, you know, I think it was because of a couple particular kind of near strikes in the private sector that there was this sense of like energy. You know, John Deere was central to that. And also not just that they were on strike, but that they kept voting down TAs and sort of pushing for more and more. Um, that, but really during it, I remember sort of trying to not be a Debbie Downer, but caution people because, you know, there was a threatened Kaiser strike of 50,000 mm. healthcare workers. There was a very close to national strike for IATSE 
Um, so the the film and TV workers, but not you there know was those the strikes, Kellogg strike as well, right? There was the Kellogg strike, right? So particularly was the interesting thing to me was that these were private sector workers who were either striking or threatening to strike and getting very close to it, um, which was significant. But I really thought the striketober stuff was overblown um, and would try to sort of say that without also. You know, when you, the problem with media is that everybody wants to like hype things up that they mm. cover. Um, this has never been my approach because I think it just makes you look like a sucker when it doesn't turn out that way. Um, but so it made sense why people, of course, want to cheer for things that are, you know, for workers who are actually pushing for better uh, contracts or like pushing beyond the bread and butter issues into more political issues you know you want to root for them and support them but also you can't make up a phenomenon right just because a few thousand workers are striking um i would say you know in general the picture right now in the u.s labor movement is it's still declining as far as union membership um you know we're at like six percent in the private sector around ten percent um in general um, you know, there is a sort of heightened discourse around labor. There's sort of this like reproduction in the cultural sphere um, of, you know, there's labor reporters, there's more labor coverage, things like that. There's, you know, the sort of for whatever worth you give opinion polling, you know, people say they're very pro-union now. Um, I think that support is, you know, somewhat thin. Um, but also it is interesting because it means, you know, people are in favor of unions. They're in favor of workers getting more than they've been getting. And yet the obstacles remain to that happening, right? Just because most people in the United States say they would join a union if they could, doesn't matter. They can't, right? Because with the mix of the obstacles at the legal level to unionizing, the amount of employer control and sort of uh, vis-a-vis, you know, union organizers over access to workers, access to the workplace, there's so many obstacles, right? And so I think it sort of points to this continued kind of blockage that's going on that is getting more and more kind of intensified. Um, I would say, you know, a couple other things, you know, that the exciting, interesting things, of course, are these small but surprising efforts in private sector um, workplaces that were until very recently thought not organizable. So you mentioned the Amazon Labor Union, obviously Starbucks worth um, for, for good reason gets a ton of attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Starbucks stuff is shocking um, that they really managed to make this just explode across the country. Um and, you know, Chipotle, REI, there's all these sort of very small workplaces that all of a sudden now it's this kind of uprising of workers trying to organize. That said, again, pointing to the blockage, none of those people have a contract. Mm. They can't even bargain, mm. right? I mean, at Starbucks, they're getting they're bargaining a little bit. But the question then comes for those of us who've been in the labor movement a while, we knew this was coming, which is it's all well and good and you want to support new organizing. But the the problems that stopped the, the working class in the United States from actually gaining more power have not been resolved. And you're seeing that with these blockages. Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, it's, it's certainly more um, exciting and optimistic to cover the labor movement and to be in the labor movement right now in the United States than it was not just like 10 years ago, but even five years ago. But I think there are real contradictions that are playing out in a in a sometimes horrific way. I mean, people are just getting fired left and right for organizing. So there are real stakes to to these issues right yeah, now. And also, there's, yeah, you sure. know, as as much as a lot of stuff you mentioned is, is really good news and like a, a positive this week, there was a really heartbreaking loss at the, the Trader Joe's union campaign. I think that's in Manhattan. It was like a mm-hmm. 76 to 76 vote, which means the union lo- yes. loses. <laughs> I, I, maybe they'll challenge it. But that's the second Trader Joe's store that lost, which is it's just sad because that was a, that was a that's a huge chain uh, that could have really benefited from a union and and I mean how how do you take news like that like obviously a second Amazon warehouse failed to unionize in October do you see that as just like a necessary process like, uh, in expanding unionization or do you see those as sort of crushing defeats in a way? I mean I. This is a very unsatisfying thing to say, I think, when I say it to a lot of people because it's deflating or it seems too easy to say. But it is genuinely a miracle that any private sector workers can Mm. successfully win a union campaign through the NLRB process Mm. um, to me in the United States. It's shocking Mm. that, you know, that the ALU won one warehouse, that anyone at Starbucks won anything. As I sort of mentioned in response to the first question, at every level of the NLRB process, the deck is stacked in favor of the employer, right? They get access to say who's in the bargaining unit or not. 
they have constant communications with the workforce, whereas the union, you know, sort of organizers and leaders have very little access to those workers. They can stall on when the date for the election is. They can threaten as long as they sort of couch it as not legally um, objectionable language. They can threaten to shut down the the workplace, the store. Um, so it is always uh, I, it, importantly yeah, too since the 1980s. Uh, there's been the the use of uh, legal replacement workers as well, right. which means that picket lines don't even do what they did anymore, even if workers uh, walk out. Right. I mean, like, trying to explain to someone that you can permanently replace workers but that's not considered firing them for striking is just you know completely baffling because any regular person is like i don't understand the difference because there is none right um and so yes i mean that's totally the case that even if you do strike you might just be replaced um and so again i know that is a very like it see it pushes people into this very pessimistic like why bother mindset but i mean people are winning despite that right but it is how I see these losses is that they are to be expected, especially when while we have an uptick in sort of pro-labor kind of sentiment and even, you know, an uptick in certain new organizing, we do not have the kind of rising tide uh, that can push people past that employer dominance and basically hegemony in all of the steps of a union campaign. Which I think is what uh, the optimistic among us, and I was cautious about Striketober too, I was cautioning people around the ALU victory on Staten Island because, again, it's all well and good to get this card signed and get you know 50% plus one uh, workers signed on, but it's a whole other to actually collectively bargain and get an actual agreement, and that can take months, years, really, more likely a ton of legal work or whatever. Um right. But, you know, there's it's not just new organizing, which seems exciting right now. There's also some of the uh, legacy organizations that exist. And I'm thinking specifically of uh, of two Sean's. Uh, you have Sean O'Brien, who's the new president of the Teamsters Union, and Sean Fain, who's the new head of the United Auto Workers. These two, I think it's fair to say in the history of the last hundred years or so, were two of the most dominant institutions in, in American, not even just labor history, but life as well. You know, 1.5 million UAW workers at its height in the, you know, the third quarter of the of the 20th century teamsters we all know the story with hoffa and the building of a million million person organization as well um these two shawns have arisen and it makes you wonder if maybe a third sean can't come to the fore perhaps yeah i hope this is inspiring you this is actually my speech to run for the presidency of the uh, united brotherhood of carpenters watch there your you ass go. mccarran i'm coming to you we need I'm less coming connors to and more shawns <laughs> a tale of three Sean's is the, what we need. The tale of three Sean's. What do we make of at least two of these Sean's? Because I'm not officially putting my hat sure. in the ring yet. Sean O'Brien, um, you know, actually, there's a great clip that I put in here. Um, and maybe, Andy, we could punch this in. Union pipe fitters decided they were going to come after us. They would show up at my house. They'd be leaning up against my trucks. I'm not afraid of a physical confrontation. In fact, sometimes I look forward to it. When that didn't work, they started picketing our job site, saying, shame on Mullen. Shame on Mullen. For what? For what? Because we were paying higher wages? Because we had better benefits and we wasn't requiring them to pay your guys' absorbent salaries? And what do you make, Mr. O'Brien? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah, I know what you make, because in 2019, your salary was um, 193000 I'm sure you've got some pay raises since then. Yeah, when I was a... And the average UPS driver, the feeder driver, makes 35000 a year? That's and what do you bring to That's the inaccurate. Table? Hold on a second. That's inaccurate. State no, facts. I've got it right here. State facts. That's inaccurate. The average UPS feeder driver makes 35000 If you don't know your facts, then maybe you should well, be I know them because I negotiate the contract. So I say, I say one thing to you. What do you bring for that salary? What do I bring? Yeah, what, do you, what, do you, what job have you committed or have you, have you uh, uh, started? What job have you created? One job other than sucking the paycheck out of some other body, somebody else that you want to say that you're trying to provide because you're forcing them to pay dues? And no, then, we don't force them. Senator, you've asked the you're question. You're out of line. Let man. Actually, the I question. have been. And no, don't tell me I'm out of line. You are out of line. Don't tell me I'm out of line. Well, you, you, you frame, don't tell me. I'm making a You frame you the statement. You frame, you frame third, the statement. Oh, oh, you mouth yeah. Because you don't you're know what you're talking about. You're going to tell me to shut my mouth? Yes, I did. Hold it. Hold it. Tough guy. I'm not afraid of physical. Hold it. But don't sit there and tell me I'm out of line. 
Senator, you made a statement. You asked the question. I didn't ask a question. You did it. You did. I answered question. the question. You asked the question. Tor- it was a rhetorical Well, question. you may think it's rhetorical. It sounded was rhetorical. to me like a question. Let him answer the question. I'm not yielding my time to him. So if you're going to let me keep my time, that's fine. You'll have your time. Let him. You ask a question. question. He has so, a right to answer that. As far as my salary goes... My salary, if you follow me around, I walk, I actually look at this building. I bet you I work more hours than you do, twice that's, as many that's hours. That's impossible. But no, that is, that's true. Sir, you don't secondly, know what hard work is. Secondly, you want to follow yeah. my schedule? Be, secondly, be, I'll do it in a minute. That's we not, hold greedy CEOs like yourself not, accountable. You call me a greedy CEO? Oh, yeah, you are. You want to attack my salary, I'll attack yours. Here, what did ahead. you make? What did you make when you owned your company? When I made my company, I kept my salary down at about uh, 50000 a year because I invested every penny into it. Okay, all right. You mean you hid money? No, I didn't hide. Oh, oh. hold on a second. Okay, close. He said that's out of line. You said right, I was out of line. We're even. We're, even. Made, made, we're not even. We're not even close to being even. I'm sure, Alex, uh, you've heard it before, but it's uh, Sean O'Brien going toe-to-toe with uh, some scumbag senator about, I, I, I don't know the whole context of it, but he owns his ass, like right in front of Bernie Sanders, and it's really good. And there's another great clip going around of Sean Fain of the UAW standing up at the convention. I know, Alex, you, you went to this convention, I believe, um, going and talking about how uh, the United Auto Workers never won anything by following the letter of the law, uh, You know that in fact it's quite the opposite, and we can't let anything stop us from gaining what we need to gain, blah, blah, blah. So there seems to be some movement here. What do you think of the two Sean's? What do they represent in terms of the old, larger, kind of dying legacy um, organizations uh, on, on, the, on the union front? Yeah. I mean, I think they're both totally fascinating figures in that they kind of illustrate different paths toward reform that the existing kind of yeah, legacy unions in the United States are taking. So, um, you know, my read on them, you know, and some people might quibble with this. Sean O'Brien, um, you know, used to be a, a Hoffa Jr. lieutenant, right? He was very close, very loyal. He led Local 25 in Charlestown in Boston. Um you know, old school, as you said in the the clip. Whenever he speaks, you know, it's uh, people love it because he's yeah. old school Boston Union guy. Totally get the appeal. Uh, you know, in this kind of moment where people are like, we don't care about the grad students. Everyone's uh, oh, we don't want nerds leading our union <laughs> movements. You know, Sean becomes like, yeah, we want this guy, right? Which I think is kind of a stupid way to uh, care about the labor movement. But I get the appeal. Yeah. Um, and so Sean comes out of that. You know, when I was I, I met him at Labor Notes at the the Labor Notes convention. I guess he now, showed to Labor ago. Notes. Wow. Okay. Right. He was he was there. He spoke at the Saturday Night Plenary. Um, alongside Chris Smalls and Stacey Davis-Gates, the head of the, the Chicago Teachers Union. He's also on that plenary, I think, was this guy Nolan Tab, who'd been one of the strikers at John Deere and was a member of the um, Unite All Workers for Democracy, which I'll talk about more. That is the Reform Caucus in the UAW that's just taken power. Um, so, you know, he really has been kind of brought in to this more left-leaning labor world in the United States But I I sort of, you know, maybe an unfair way to describe it is his ascendancy was a bit of a palace coup um, in the Teamsters, you know. So he'd been a loyal lieutenant. He'd been the lead negotiator for the UPS contracts at the international level. Um, And he broke with Hoffa Jr. and Hoffa's guys over the last UPS contract, which was in 2018. And, you know, for people who aren't familiar... That contract, which is the biggest private sector contract in the United States, covers now almost 350,000 workers. Um, That contract was negotiated to include a new tier of workers, Mm. of drivers, who would be paid less for the same work. Second tier, deadly. Yes, deadly. Um, You know, I covered it at the time for the Washington Post saying that the rank and file needed to vote it down, which I do not normally do because I, you know, I don't think it's my place to tell people what to do. But it was very clear this would be just a horrible contract. We saw Um, what it did uh, to the UAW and, of course, also to the United Brotherhood of Carpenters, a second tier. Absolutely. Absolutely takes the solidarity, the guts right out of of a labor labor union. Right. And for people who don't sort of aren't familiar with this stuff, just imagine if you're doing the same job as your coworker, you're sitting right next to each other, you're standing right next to each other and your coworker, she's getting paid twice what you're getting paid. It's very hard to build the solidarity and kind of relationships and trust 
when in that sort of situation, you just start resenting each other, right? And you're like, why does she get this when I don't? And it just destroys a union from the inside. If not immediately, then certainly over a course of 5, 10, 15 years. So Sean broke with Hoffa Jr. because that contract... You know, Hoffa Jr. was very close with management of UPS. I often say, you know, the leaders of some of these unions are closer to the the management across the table than they are to the rank and file that they supposedly represent. Mm -hmm. And Hoffa Jr. really pushed that contract through. The rank and file did end up voting it down, which was miraculous, really. I mean, it took a lot of mobilization by people at the rank and file level. And yet Hoffa then, in a shocking turn of of fate that I certainly wasn't aware of this possibility and basically no UPS workers were either, Hoffa used a very arcane thing in the the Teamsters Constitution, which I'm not even going to go into, but it let him override that vote Mm. and force the contract through. Like Um, Macron in France. You you got... (laughs) uh, yeah, Hoffa Jr. is a, is a little American Macron. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and as, you know, in that long article I wrote about the preparations for the likely upcoming UPS strike this summer, you know, a lot of UPS workers basically say they knew that was the end of Hoffa, um, that there was no way that the workers were going to take this anymore, that he would betrayed those who still had any faith in him. Um, and so sure enough, over the next couple of years, they, at their constitutional convention, get rid of that rule that Hoffa used. So, you know, no more could that ever happen again. And then Sean O'Brien announces that he's running for the the international presidency against Hoffa Jr.'s handpicked successor, because at that point, Hoffa Jr. was like pushing 80 years old. Hmm. Uh, so he wasn't going to run again. And O'Brien, you know, he forms an alliance with People like the Teamsters for Democratic Union, TDU, which is the longstanding reform caucus in the Teamsters. Um, And that's the kind of people, you know, they share an office with labor notes. They're like the lefty side of the Teamsters union. Um, But they're, you know, a very rank and file based, you know, they're not uh, kind of this top down thing like the Teamsters leadership often is. As we Uh, talked about in History as a Weapon 15, they came out of Hal Draper's uh, Socialist Worker Party in San Francisco in the 1960s. Right, right. Anyway, I realize I'm going on too long. long, No, no, this is is, great, please. Okay. All of which is to say that, you know, to me, it was really interesting. I mean, I opened this answer with, I met O'Brien at Labor Notes. And it's that's a sign of this kind of alliance, which is still enduring between people like TDU um, members, some of whom are out and out socialists, some of whom just describe themselves as like, I'm a rank and file militant, whatever. Um, and Sean O'Brien, who has never described himself as a socialist, but he is a militant. I mean, Sean has led strikes and won them. His rhetoric is very, you know, sort of like fighting and, and very different than other rhetoric of other union leaders in the past. Um, but, you know, he... You know, he um, I think at the at labor notes, he said, you know, he was at a TDU fundraiser that was being held during the during the conference. And he gave a big speech saying, thanking them, saying the alliance is not done. We're going to need each other. We need each other just as much as we did during the election. And he was referring to to win a strong UPS contract this round. He's appointed TDU members to higher levels in the union. Um, so that that's really interesting to me, right? It's this, he's like a sort of real politic guy, right? Mm-hmm. He's just like, no, I'm not a radical or a socialist, but I, you know, it's the classic Walter Ruther line, you know, that the communists were the best organizers. And so he needed them. Um, right. And so I think Sean has a similar kind of view of these things. Um, and I think the radicals in the union also do not have any kind of illusions, but they're very happy with Sean. Whenever I speak to them, they're saying, you know, he has not backed down from kind of the rhetoric or the aims and promises he made during the campaign. Um, now, all that said, Sean Fain, UAW president. So he um, had a real hard go in that he just won. You know, he it, there was a runoff campaign. Then the votes were being counted and he won by something like 450 ballots um, over the other guy. The context for the UAW was that they had never had direct elections for mm. international leadership. Um, it was th- before this recent election, it was always decided by a delegate system, which without getting too in the weeds here as far as how that worked, basically it meant that the administration caucus, which is the one caucus that existed in the UAW since Walter Ruther's time, mm. so almost 80 years ago, Um, They were always in charge of who was going to, you know, they could basically rig those elections. They could make sure they have the delegates and kind of curry 
favor and, and withhold resources if you don't vote a certain way to your local or your workplace, so on and so forth, so that they always won um, all those elections. Um, the administration caucus, of course, is very well known now, even outside of the labor movement, because the, it was those leaders who also have now been 12 of them were sent to prison for corruption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people think of, you know, the the mobbed up Teamsters as the most kind of corrupt moment in union history. I think if you start looking into the details, these guys definitely uh, can at least claim maybe more corruption. Uh, and there's <laughs> and there maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. But there wasn't yeah. even the implication that there was like an outside mafia doing no. the corruption, which is like, I think should be eye opening for people. These were yeah. like high up union officials who were doing things like negotiating whole the building and funding of whole training centers, like union management training centers. Uh, out of which they were skimming millions upon millions of dollars for themselves. They were flying to Florida on the Union Dime. They were going on golf junkets. They were like getting all sorts of you know fancy watches and shit like that. You didn't need an outside corrupting organization in this instance. There was something about, and we'll talk about this, something about uh, the UAW and something about its relationship to capital that allowed this to be a complete an internal affair, as it were. Yes, that's a very important distinction to make. Yes, and I mean. And it's like, it's embarrassing and so shameful um, when you look at these details. Like, you know, I in so I have this long article that I published after the UAW's recent special convention um, called Can the UAW Rise Again? And in there I talk about, you know, they were spending, they were acquiring so many like golf bags and shorts and sunglasses that, that they ended up using a semi truck to ship them back to Michigan. I mean, your union do is hard at work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that piece I opened for a reason with this guy, John Wire, who is a auto worker, um, longtime UAW member. And the first line of the article is John Wire remembers the day that he threw out his UAW shirts. Mm-hmm. And he had been, you know, this lefty left leaning um, teenager who grew up in, in Detroit and would protest against like U.S. intervention in Central and South America and was very, you know, for gay rights and stuff. And he thought, you know, becoming a union member is a huge part of that, right? Like labor, first you change labor and you know, power to the workers, then power to the people, right? Mm-hmm. And he opens the opening anecdote of that piece. He's describing that like, when he starts realizing the extent of the corruption, you know, maybe eight, nine years ago is when he starts kind of getting getting an idea of how deep this goes. He not only threw out all his union T-shirts, but he got so depressed that he actually like he saw a therapist briefly. He could not function. And he described it to me as like he was grieving a death. Mm. Right. Because this, you know, he was he tells me, I think I quote him, he says, Think about how hard one of our nurses in Toledo on the midnight shift has to work for two and a half hours of her time a month to pay union dues. You know, she's wiping someone's ass. She's cleaning someone's diaper and staying on her feet to pay those dues. I mean, this is a very real. It's so shameful. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the administration caucus where a lot of those guys who both were president, secretary, treasurer, vice presidents, and then members of the executive board. You know, two former UAW presidents have served jail time over this. Um, so it's real serious and it's all pervasive at the top level of UAW. Now, because of those corruption investigations, a federal monitor was appointed to sort of oversee and recommend reforms within the UAW. One of those things that they recommended and then the UAW agreed to was to hold a referendum on holding direct elections for mm. leadership. That referendum passed by a a strong majority. And so finally, the first direct elections in UAW history were held. And this reform caucus that I mentioned earlier, UAWD, um, which is, you know, somewhat analogous to TDU as far as who sort of it consists of, um, though much newer, right? It just formed in about 2019, in large part to push for direct elections before this monitor um, Mm. got involved in that fight. They were going to try to push it through a constitutional kind of amendment. Um, and they they all told me that they thought they could have actually gotten it done. But COVID complicated organizing so much that, you know, they kind of put it on on ice until this ended up happening. Um, so they decide to contest for seven seats at the highest level. So the the president position, secretary, treasurer, and then five of these other international executive board seats. Um, they were they ran on. um 
their platform, you know, they couldn't contest every election, right? Because the UAW, some regions, I'd say the kind of old guard is a little more entrenched and there's mm. very, the base is not there for these reformers, you know, especially it's interesting what I kind of realized in a very stark form at the convention for the UAW was that the four locals are very hostile um, to the UAWD hmm. in part because the one remaining vice president now from the administration caucus um, seemed to be a very good organizer and he comes out of the Ford locals um, hmm. and sort of is, it leads the negotiation. So his name's Chuck Browning um, and he is now the highest ranking, you know, old guard guy left. So of those seven elections that the reformers contest, they win all of them, hmm. um, which is Pretty shocking, right? Because no one knew how this would go. It had never happened. Um, and so that was the context by which then Sean Fain, after he was the last to win his race because there was a rerun and this very slow count of the ballots. And so actually the day before that convention that I went to and wrote about was when he finally was sworn in, which is mm. almost comical because then he the next day had to wake up and lead a convention um, in front of many delegates who do not like him or support mm. him and are going to resist his presidency. Yeah. We'll put the link to that article in the uh, show yeah. notes. It's uh, it was a pretty incredible de uh, description of the tensions within this union uh, with this, after this breakthrough of, uh, of the rank and file caucus. It's, it's good stuff. Um, I, I just want to say the last on, thing please. I meant to say, yeah. the one kind of key distinction I often draw and why I mentioned Sean O'Brien is a bit more of a palace coup is that Sean Fain, while he had, you know, he was this local leader in Kokomo, Indiana, and then, and his grandfather, I think, was a UAW guy. Actually, I think three of his grandparents, or at least two of them, were UAW. His dad actually was the local police chief, which I think is uh, pretty interesting. I, I can't draw any conclusions from that, but it seems like a weird way to be brought up. Sure. Um, and so he'd been brought on to international staff um, to help with negotiations, but he was not the sort of high-ranking guy that Sean O'Brien is. And it was really remarkable to me, once I started spending more time with him in Detroit, that he really kind of related to the UAWD, the Reform Caucus, as just another member, right? Mm -hmm. So I emphasize that Sean O'Brien has this very sensible and, and I think necessary alliance with the reformers, but he would not say he's one of them. He's not a TDU member in fact, he used to actually, he's been caught threatening TDU members long ago before his sort of um, late in life uh, conversion. Whereas Sean Fain, you know, I, at one point during the convention, he came into the, the hotel room, conference room that was sort of acting as the UAWD headquarters throughout the convention. And he start, he teared up several times saying, I'm so proud to be a member of this caucus. He was asking for their support with speeches. He was just participating as a member. He was not telling them what to do, anything like that. And I really, I, as I was witnessing this, I, and sort of the way he was relating to the other members, I was like, I've never seen anything like this mm. from an actual, the international president of such a powerful union. Um, yeah. And so, and I remember asking folks I knew there that are, I think of as the most skeptical of any elected union leader. And they all said, you know, basically, he's the real deal. Um, he was sort of, he's been transformed by this election and his experiences in the UAW. And while he does not come out of some, like, left-wing group, he they see him as entirely kind of of the project, um, which I think that distinction is really, I think, something we should all be aware of as we kind of look at what both of these people are going to do going forward. Yeah, for sure. I, I've got a, a couple follow ups to that. I guess the first is maybe more of a comment that, that, you know, it seems like to me, when you look at the history of American unionism, especially through the 1930s and into the post war period, you know, what Gabe Winant kind of taught, I think, all of us a few years ago with his book about this whole idea of there being like a private welfare system, privatized welfare system with this, um, you know, call it a truce, an uneasy truce between labor and capital The through the 1970s, 1980s. Um, the UAW and especially the Ruther brothers are sort of these, these paragons of like what um, sort of American quasi-social democracy could actually look like. These are people who not only had the ears of presidents, you know, Democratic and Republican, had mass power, of course, to call strikes. But uh, I think, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, had real relationships with um, uh, Martin Luther King or um, what's his name? Uh, Randolph Phillips, you know, people who are either socialists or adjacent civil rights uh, leaders. And yet the interesting paradox and contradiction of that is that 
of course, this old guard now represented by the same sort of forces that brought Rutherism together were the ones that were fighting against the sort of democratic yeah. uh, movement, uh, democratic unionism necessary actually to confront what is decades upon decades now of decline in the UAW. So there's this contradiction at the heart of it, which is that like the social democratic leadership, which leads like the massive sit down strikes of the 1930s, comes out with right. this great power to fight for in a in a real way like the the working class as a whole using legislation yeah. and policy at the federal uh, and state level you know then become the actual impediments to the UAW mm -hmm. continuing to be a f not even like a, a fighting organization that can push gains forward but just be able to protect itself as more and more capital flees and as now it seems what is it over half of uh, or about half of auto workers in the United States are non-union yeah yeah. I mean, that's it's totally true that Walter Ruther in, in particular is such a useful case study of kind of the contradictions of social democracy in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm sure you've read a lot of Nelson Lichtenstein's work, yeah. a labor historian. He wrote a great, very long, though, I must warn listeners, uh, biography called The Most Dangerous Man in Detroit. Um, about Ruther and, you know, and I highly recommend people read that book, I guess, in particular, because I just think he, he's endlessly interesting because it highlights exactly what you're saying, which is what are the constraints if you can't go beyond um, sort of the existing union structures in the United States as they calcified after the sit down strikes, right? Because it would be giving, it would not be giving Walter Ruther and the early UAW enough credit to say that they already, you know, they formed that regime. You know, they were going against the law, as Sean Fain talked about in his closing speech at this convention. Mm -hmm. They sort of did the things that I think us today would think of as like a radical, you know, working class militancy outside the bounds of the law. I mean, Walter Ruther famously was got beat up during those things. Battle um, of the overpass, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, and yet, you know, and I think Gabe's book is a good kind of analogy um, to sort of look at as far as the steel industry, where there's this sort of entrenchment with the employers and within the bounds of the law and kind of creating this private welfare state where you can look out for your members. But it's very hard if you don't keep constantly forging beyond that to the broader working class um, to sort of resist the the kind of countervailing forces that will put you eventually on the defensive, right? And into a state of what I think most people describe the UAW of recent decades as, which is managing decline, mm -hmm. um, which is, yeah, far from a fighting organization for the working class. I mean, not even fighting for your members. Right. Um, and I wish I had very pat, clean answers to how to escape that contradiction. But I think, you know, one of the interesting questions about this current moment with the UAW is, OK, they have achieved something that, you know, the reformers of re past decades in the union thought would never happen in part because of this federal monitor that kind of gave them the shortcut to getting there. Interestingly. And, but, what, but yes, but mm. what can they do, right? How do you, can, can, you know, not that Sean Fain is a communist or something, but he's certainly surrounded by quite a few militants and left-leaning people, socialists mm. for sure. How do they get out of that trap, right? Can they? Is that their, I mean, I would say they want to for sure. Um, but I have no idea if they can. I mean, because again, are, there are certain limitations in this moment. Um, I mean, especially the auto industry of all industries poses yeah. such a huge question to an industry that is in decline objectively, you know, as far as jobs and the switch to EV plants, which employ far fewer people. Yeah, let's I mean, talk yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, what, what we're talking about reminds me of one of the reasons why I thought at the time, and I think in a very, very real way, uh, it's true that uh, the American, la the uh, Amazon Labor Union uh, breakthrough on Staten Island with uh, Christian Smalls and the rank and file fighting for that. One of the reasons why I thought it was important, and you probably did too, is that it was an independent effort. In fact, if if we go back a couple of years before that, uh, was it in Bessemer? Right there was a drive by. What was the union drive in Bessemer? RWDSU. RWDSU attempted from the outside Retail, to come in. wholesale, yeah. And organized, and it failed. You know, it was like a, this, this huge shock. And then it happens independently by Christian Smalls and a bunch of militants. Uh, and this seemed like a real breakthrough. I guess where I'm going with this is that the UAW is at a, a real crosswords, uh, crossroads, as we're seeing right now. Electric vehicles, uh, you know, if, as I understand, as you wrote in your article, all electric vehicle and battery production is outside of the collective bargaining agreement, such as it exists right now. There's this massive shift 
uh, towards EVs, which isn't merely because it's like a good, clean technology. I mean, we can debate about that whole thing. <laughs> the the labor portion that goes into creating these electric vehicles is so much smaller. If I could do a little sidebar, I was shocked, and I think I talked about it on the show like a year ago when I found out. But one of an article came out in the business press talking about how Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, had started disrupting supply lines. And one of the big things I didn't realize was manufactured in Ukraine is something called a harness, which for old uh, internal combustion engines uh, basically is this mass of wires that need to be like hand um, threaded together uh, and are different for each kind of make and model of a car. So it's a very labor intensive process of basically putting all these wires together so they can be attached from the engine to the electronics, whatever, of like these internal combustion engine cars. All of a sudden now, this was happening in Ukraine because labor was so cheap. Now, these harnesses couldn't be made. So there's this big scramble to try to figure out who else could cheaply make the things. But it was pointed out in the article that electric vehicles, you know, because it's more solid state, would eliminate all this labor anyways. So car companies in the US and elsewhere were like, well, if we can't get these harnesses, one more reason to go through electric vehicles. This long little sidebar is, is that the UAW faces probably an existential moment right now. Uh, this reform movement that broke through a kind of vindication of the old rank and file strategy going back to, you know, Kim Moody 25 years ago or so, right? And the the labor notes sort of um, conception and Teamsters for Democratic Union. I'm I'm completely wandering right now. But what I'm saying is that <laughs> something needs to shift because you saw a similar the attempt of the UAW to organize, I think it was in Tennessee a few years ago, where you had um, Volkswagen telling the workers, we want you to have a works council, like a union like we have in Europe. You had UAW coming in from the outside and trying to organize them. And you had uh, the rank and file members down there in Tennessee shoot the union down. The impediments, you know, especially since so much of this manufacturing happens in the South now in the United States, is just absolutely epic. So how do we imagine that there could be perhaps a synthesis of like the outside strategy, um, you know, that has worked in the past that, um, you know, the RWCU tried to do in Bessemer and then a sort of independent strategy. This seems to be the only way you could imagine a real breakthrough and like a stop of the managed decline and an ability to get back the 50% of American auto workers who are no longer under the contract. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Sean, you're aware that's a massive question. Um, yeah. And and I mean, so a couple things. First, on the, the ALU, I mean, I think the ALU has been a educational uh, test case for a, for a lot of people across the United States labor movement in that, one, it's absolutely clear to me as someone who is sort of closely in following and in touch with these people from the jump that the fact that they were independent is what allowed them to win, 100%. Mm -hmm. That's clear. Um for reasons that would lead me to rant for like another 50 minutes, so I won't go into it. But, you know, the specifics of that workplace, especially the fact that it's a majority, you know, it's not majority black, I don't think, but it is majority non-white. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, the fact that the Teamsters are the other people who are sort of leading the charge on organizing Amazon, just it would not have quite worked, um, I think, to try to go from the outside in on this one. Also, there were such specificities around Chris Smalls's you know, cat being catapulted into the public eye yeah. over how he was fired. That had that not happened, I do not think Chris could have organized that warehouse otherwise. Um, so it's sort of this this historical irony that that's it was really Bezos who allowed him to win because he vilified him in such an obviously stupid way. Mm -hmm. um, that said, you know what has happened since I think for myself as well has been um, kind of an important thing to actually pay attention to, which is there's some real downsides to an independent union, especially mm. at a company as powerful as Amazon. They have very few resources to they, you know, the there's not a lot of institutional knowledge on how to build up shop floor leadership um, that would actually say be able to push towards a strike at JFK 8, which I do believe is probably the only thing that you could do to get Amazon to the bargaining table. Um, there is, you know, and there's constant need for fundraising. You know, Chris himself has to constantly fundraise. That is part of why he's always, you know, sort of speaking to the media or otherwise doing public events. Um, so the institutional know-how is, I think, important. Um, and just the basic resources, you know, it's constantly other unions need to and should be giving them money, but it's just not a sustainable thing. Um, and there's also very little, you know, I mean, I... I very much am on the side of hoping that the ALU can figure out its internal problems. 
but there's some real issues, right? I mean, the the sort of articles that have come out about how their constitution has been amended so that there won't be leadership elections until after a contract, which again, mm. who knows when that happens. That is not democratic. And mm. if there were already an established union constitution, that would not be something that could happen. Mm. Um, and so I think it's important that we think about like both the limitations and the strengths. Um, that said, you're right that the UAW has failed again and again with organizing, particularly the plants in the South, which is where auto manufacturers go now to evade unions and labor laws and minimum wages and all yep. sorts of things. It's where Boeing goes as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting, like, so some of these EV plants are called RUAW, hmm. um, but they still, the, the, it's very complicated and I won't pretend to know all the details, but like, because a lot of these battery plants in particular are joint ventures. So like a Ford will partner with another company to set up this plant. And then they'll say, well, we're not, it's not a big three plant. So it's not under the master contract. Oh, because they're working with like a Chinese or a Japanese yeah, company yeah. or something. Yeah. And so that's how they get out of it. Even if the, the members, which has happened of those plants, decide to organize with the UAW. So they still don't make the same amount. And um, and that in part, I think, is a huge failing of the UAW's previous leadership that they allowed this to happen. You know, when the industry was first rolling out, they could have they surely knew what they were setting themselves up for, which is even speedier decline. Um, and so I think that is, it's again, just shameful and embarrassing on the union's part. Um, there was this, it's interesting, Sean Fain just gave a, um, an interview, I guess on Friday, um, to, yeah, the Detroit Automotive Press Association. So right now that I'm all all in on UAW stuff, I'm constantly having to read the, the car news. Um, <laughs> no, that's good. That's like me in my me. Carpenter magazine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the irony that I recently told a UAW leader, I had not told at the convention is, I actually do not have a driver's license for how to drive a car, <laughs> which Incredible. is great. <laughs> yeah, I think the auto workers can tell when they talk to me. Um, but you're there but, in the trenches, man. You but I'm there. Do. I'm there pretending to know how a car works. <laughs> um, but anyway, so he gave this interview on Friday where, among other things, he once again, he was sort of criticizing the Detroit automakers for setting up these EV operations and ventures with, that aren't organized. He particularly was talking about this venture that's being set up by Ford in Tennessee that's going to be 11,000 workers he said, you know, that should be a UAW plant. Um, and this really does seem to be a priority um, for the new leadership. It came up constantly at the convention, um, which, to be clear, was a special bargaining convention focused on the upcoming um, negotiations at the big three auto plants, which have been, you know, long been the UAW sort of like big pride and joy contracts. Right now, they cover about 150,000 workers. Very important contracts, sort of like the UPS contract for the Teamsters. Um, and so that is sort of how they're going to do that. I don't know. I mean, I think it's just true that there has to be this sort of independent desire among the workers for sure um, to join the UAW. You can't force it from the outside. They've mm -hmm. sort of tried that and failed, as you said. Um, and I think part of that would take them winning a strong contract at the big three and undoing these horrifying concessions that they agreed to, especially during the recession in 2008. Um, because, you know, the Teamsters say this about the UPS contracts relationship to Amazon organizing, which is the best sell for newer organizing is a strong existing contract, right? If your contract's embarrassing for the workers you represent, who's going to want to join you? So, I mean, I that doesn't really bring in the independent union focus, but I do think that is kind of key is like, if these unions say they want to grow, they better show that they're you know, worth joining. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, despite having the... Um the most pro-union president in American <laughs> history, uh, Joseph Robinette Biden. Uh, it seems as though the uh, real alliance between unions and the Democratic Party is frayed. Uh, maybe not among the leadership. It seems like the Sarah Nelsons of the world, and you know, not to you know um, pin it all on her, but it seems like uh, like leadership still, of course, has this easy this alliance with the Democratic Party. But it seems as though that uh, marriage is becoming more and more barren by the day. One of the fallbacks that you could do up until, I guess, the 1970s or so is that you could simply rely on uh, policy changes done by uh, lobbying the correct politicians, by getting the right membership on the National Labor uh, Relations Board, which has 
has had real effect, obviously. You know, we, we've seen grad uh, student union organizing uh, shoot up since the, there was a um, result that was overturned that said that they could be part of a collective bargaining unit. And UAW itself is is, uh, is part of that organizing yeah. process. But I wonder what... Um, what the relationship between a resurgent uh, UAW, uh, a resurgent Teamsters union uh, will look like politically, given mm -hmm. the fact that um, the railway workers last year were so utterly defeated uh, by, again, the most pro-union president in U.S. history. I wonder if you see any sort of splits that are happening right now between like the natural ally of organized labor <laughs> and the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean... I think that, so when I was at this UAW convention, you know, I think it was, I think I heard several of the newly elected reformer leadership, you know, on the executive board say, when asked this question about like, what is the political intervention that's going to happen from you? Like, what is your vision there? Political um, in a very specific sense. Yeah, in the United yeah. States, that means like which lobbying, which party, which policy, yeah. not like political and like Macron's France where political <laughs> is, is a broader concept. Yeah. Though, yeah. I, I mean, at least one person who was asking this question was referring to you like the UAW, the UAW's old version of political interventions, which was more than just narrow kind of lobbying. I mean, for example, as you mentioned, them paying, I put in the article that, you know, they paid for all kinds of stuff at the March on Washington, right? Like mm -hmm. they built ties with civil rights leadership and rank and filers, you know, um, and same thing for the student movement. So the UAW did used to have like broader political vision, as we said, this sort of social democratic and anti-racist kind of vision from the top down, maybe more than, you know, the bottom up, but it does not have that anymore. So that was yeah. sort of the context. And but yes, the answers I heard, at least, which again, you know, is the first day of Sean Fain's presidency, so who knows, but were that, you know, the one thing that the leadership would say to distinguish themselves was, we would not have been silent about Biden quashing the rail strike. That right. was, you know, that is shameful that our union did not, you know, sort of was not outraged and very vocal about that. Um, and that seemed to be the thing people were, were taking as like, here's my answer to what distinguishes us from from the sort of basic, like, we support anybody who's in the Democratic Party and pro-labor or something, um, which I think is significant, though not much of an answer. Um, I'm glad that that was at least being said. Um, but otherwise, I would hear just sort of the, the thing that anyone says, whether they're on the left or the right, like the most center of the leader, the leadership of the labor movement, which is we're not just going to turn out to vote for anyone, you know, who thinks that they're a friend of labor. They need to really be in our interest in doing things for us, which again, sure, but that can mean all kinds of things. When yeah. I say that, it means something different than, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever, than like- uh, Listen, I've a, done my my picket duty. I did picket <laughs> duty on Staten Island, handing out literature for a Republican uh, running for city council who said they were gonna be the number one, uh, you know, union supporter out there. Right. And so I went around and you know, I had a couple of drinks at the bar and then threw them in the fucking trash, <laughs> but I ended up getting my yearly picket duty out of it. So very, <laughs> so very I don't, narrow so I don't political know. interest. I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, it's not a secret that particularly these two legacy unions, though I think people would say the UAW the most, um, is what has been used as sort of a, I think, very... Um, very cynical kind of plaything in the hands of the right as, oh, like manufacturing workers, especially white ones, are pro-GOP now, which again, numbers are very contested on that one. But I think that is in the heads of some of the union leadership as far as like, how far can we go without alienating people? Yeah. Um, Sarah Nelson, you know, despite her sort of closeness still with Democratic leadership, I think is, is much more confident in pushing for certain things at the policy level that might also be more like a Bernie Sanders style kind of like social democracy. Um, and because she kind of has this feeling of like an engaged rank and file that trusts her and that she has kind of like done the educational work and her people have done, you know, at every level to sort of say, here's why abortion is a worker's issue and we should, you know, be against the restriction of it. Here's why universal health care, that's sort of like social democratic policy thinking that is not like radical, nor is it you know, breaking with the Democratic Party, but at least is not this incredibly narrow uh, yeah, bread and butter unionism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, well yeah. I... 
this is great. We're at, we're getting up to about an hour and I mm -hmm. think it's a good time to go behind the paywall and start asking the tough questions, do some, do some commie shit. Uh, yeah. maybe try to, uh, wrap this conversation we're having here with, I, with Matt, uh, Matt Crispin and my, uh, conversation in history as a weapon 15 about these impediments and these barriers to union, how it's not merely just like corruption or, um, bad leadership or even a lack of democracy that has led to the pulverous, uh, is that even a word, to the shitty state of American labor, that there's something uh, systematic happening there. Uh, and I want to start with that on the bonus side by talking about the really cool shit that's been happening uh, with uh, Sanita, the uh, New Mexican auto workers trade union down in Mexico, and trying to imagine a sort of international auto worker response that could be uh, between them and American rank and file. So with that, we go off to the uh, fun half. Uh, Andy's got some questions about uh, the role of the uh, Communist Party uh, USA youth group within the uh, Amazon labor union. Uh, I've got uh, questions about uh, the big push, the big article you wrote several years ago about whether uh, the DSA might be able to, the, the insertion of socialists into the labor movement might be able to change things. And we'll see where we're at on that. And we'll talk about, like I said before, structural impediments, the capital labor relation and all that good stuff. If you are interested, patreon.com slash the Antifada uh, will be over on that side. Thank you so much, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me.